I bid you welcome. I want to play a game. Stay on the road. Keep clear of the moors. It can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. Let them see what kind of a person I am. Why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. Hey folks, my name is Will. My name is Yaz. And welcome to the Monster Monday podcast. This is the weekly podcast where myself and Yaz talk about a horror film every single week. And Yaz, why do we talk about horror films? Because the monsters in film aren't as scary as the monsters in real life. And a few months ago, we talked about the universal horror monster film Dracula, starring Bella Lugosi. And now we're going to be talking about the next Universal monster film. We're talking 1931's Frankenstein, which is directed by James Whale, starring, of course, the irreplaceable Boris Karloff. We've got Colin Clive as well. One of the most iconic horror films of all time, so no pressure when talking about it. And (laughs) hopefully we'll try and add something new to this discussion, a film that's literally nearly a century old. We'll see how we go. Yeah, hopefully this episode can bring you lots of escapism because once again the world is literally <laughs> fucking on fire. Yeah, it's going a bit crazy. Um, uh, <laughs> there's been some awful news in both the UK and the US regarding young black men once again. Mm. So um, our thoughts and feelings are with those affected and we hope we can give you a little bit of escapism into arguably... In my opinion, one of the best horror films in the entire world. Now, how did this film come about? Well, basically, during the late 1920s, Universal was a bit strapped for cash. They weren't doing too well. However, when Dracula was released, it was basically their most successful film in the year it came out. Massive smash hit of a film. Obviously controversial, but as we all know, folks, controversy is sexy. So that brings a lot of people to the multiplex, despite it being the beginning of the Great Depression. And because Dracula was such a success, it was based off of a book, obviously, but it drew, the film adaptation drew a lot of influence from a recent stage production. Frankenstein was, of course, the same. It was written by Mary Shelley in the early 19th century. It was written anonymously. There was no author credited because not only should... She was off her tits. Yeah, yeah, also. (laughs) Basically, her, Byron, Shelley, they were... Taking lots of drugs. And basically... Doing, getting up to all sorts of debauchery in the in the Villa Diodati. Well, they they were teenagers still. That's the, oh, yeah. that's the crazy thing. Like they're talked about as like as if they were like adults, but they were teenagers. Yeah, they, they like were, they were. Yeah, they were teenage- at least Mary Shelley was. Yeah, they were all having flings with each other. They were these romanticist figures. Had this competition to say like, oh, it's a stormy night. It was the it was the storm that never end because of some volcanic activity that was happening. So it was constantly raining, constantly foggy. They couldn't go outside to the lake. So they thought, well, we'll stay indoors one night and we'll write spine tingling, scary stories. Of which Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, published it anonymously because not only should women not be writing, they shouldn't be writing horror. So it was it was published anonymously, became obviously a massive success, inspired many stage productions, including some early silent films, one of which directed by Thomas Edison. And the, it was a recent play that inspired this film, very much like Dracula. And there was there's so much talk behind the scenes about like how people got involved. There was another director who was meant to make this, but because there's no paperwork or preservation, we don't know why James Whale wound up taking over. There's so many conflicting reports about whether or not Bella Lugosi was going to play the creature, and he turned it down because he didn't. He wouldn't have many speaking roles. He was a good-looking actor, didn't want to be caked in makeup, so it went to Boris Karloff. And then I think what might have happened is that after the film became a massive success... He was like, oh, no, I, I didn't want to do it in the first. Like, I didn't, like, basically, history is written by the victors. But either way, massive success for Frankenstein. But does the film hold up? Oh, yeah, definitely. It is still one of the best makeups ever, ever made. Mm. And you can fight me on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, yeah, I don't think that, uh, that is up for dispute. Because the iconography of Frankenstein, the creature... I'm, I feel like I've already maybe fumbled with who is the monster and who's the creature and the name and all, all that fun controversy. But anyway, let's dive into... I think we'll just go completely spoiler discussion. This film is nearly a century old. It it runs out... It, it becomes public domain in like five or six years' time. 
and you kind of know the plot of Frankenstein. We're just going to go all spoilers. We won't segment it. So let's talk about Frankenstein. The film doesn't open like a conventional film. It opens with actor Edward Van Sloan as himself. He played Van Helsing in the Dracula Universal film. Here he plays Frankenstein's teacher, mentor, Dr. Waldman. But the film opens with him walking onto a stage, basically saying, hey, this film, it's full of, it's full of messed up things. It's a bit scary and spine tingling. So if you want to leave, there's the door. It may horrify you. Yes. Um... Why, why can't we start all... Like cinema showings like this, that would get me into the cinema more. If there was yeah. somebody sit there going, "You have been warned. Yes, this, this may horrify you. <laughs> this may <laughs> surprise you." It's so cool as well. He walks onto the stage like an absolute boss. He says, "This is a uh, one of the strangest tales ever. It will thrill you. It may shock you. It may horrify you." And you know, of those of nervous disposition, you know, this this film isn't for you. And I think that's. Really cool showmanship. Yeah, I'd love to have that again. That would definitely get me to go back to the cinema. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Carl Lindley feels it would be a little unkind to present this picture without just a word of friendly warning. We are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. So the film then properly opens. We've got Henry Frankenstein, not Victor Frankenstein, as he's called in the book. He's got a best friend who's called Victor, and they made the name change because the producers thought that the name Victor was a little bit too uh, an aggressive sounding name for the audience to try and relate to the character. And I wish I was making that up. So Victor it sounds like an angry, I think like German villainous name. I think that was their rationale oh, behind it. And you know, this is 1930s um america making oh, this yeah. as well okay so right. yes yeah. so while you know frankenstein and they, they draw oh yeah but they don't draw a line of frankenstein which is the most <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> european sounding name but frankenstein though i think it's the just the the saying the intonation of the word frankenstein it ca it sounds like such a cool name like, yeah. even just disassociated from the book and the film. Well, it's legacy. like in um, oh, is it the film Big Daddy and the little kid wants to be known as Frankenstein? Yeah. <laughs> he wants to change his name, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. He's Frankenstein. <laughs> that kid's got good taste and good taste in movies and literature. He's also joined by an assistant called Fritz, and Fritz is. He's like a hunchback servant. He's not in the book at no, all. No, he's made up. Yeah, and he's also played by Dwight Fry. Who, oh, who, yes. our good old friend Dwight Fry. Once again from Dracula, playing the, the rat-eating, the insect-eating Renfield in Dracula. And he's playing the hunchback character here. Now, the hunchback character is not called Igor. He wouldn't appear until several sequels, played by Bella Lugosi. Um, he's not from the book. He is from the stage production as well. And this is something that... If you've not read the book, but you've only seen the Frankenstein films, you'll think that a character like Igor or Fritz is just synonymous with the Frankenstein story. But this film takes massive deviations from Mary Shelley's book. I've read the book. It's a, it's a rollicking good read, um, <laughs> I should say. Um, but yeah, it's, Could you sound any more British that, then? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a really good book that does hold up. But this film is such a... It takes the name and the basic concept of a of a doctor wanting to reanimate the dead, and that's basically it. It's a very different book. Even the actual means of resurrecting the bodies is drastically different. In in Frankenstein, the film, and basically all adaptations, it's lightning, it's electricity. I really like that though. Oh yeah, it's, it's cool. really cool. But in in the book, it's just he does it's it. Left ambiguous yeah because he's he's writing in the book it's formatted like a diary and he's 
um, it's basically like almost on his deathbed where he's like confessing these grievous sins that he's done. And he says that he leaves it purposefully vague in the diaries so he doesn't pass on the knowledge and he doesn't let other people know how to do this. So it, there's a narrative reason for it. But what a clever way to let the reader how, interpret it with their own imagination. Mm. I mean, that's just genius. Yeah. It's great. It, it, and what it, a perfect horror film. What Sorry, a horror story. Because then you can just put your own mm. horrifying spin on it. Yeah, whether it's like it is science or if it's alchemy, black magic, or just just luck. But like he somehow did it. I think it, it just makes the story all the more interesting. Not to say that the film's inclusions, like from Fritz, from the electricity, from all the other things, bring it down. It's just, it's it's a remix more or less. Yeah, but I think the reason, like, it is such an iconic film mm -hmm. that it has now become synonymous with the mad scientist yeah. trope. And, you know, um, like, the the whole sci-fi horror mix-up. And I'm sorry, but there was Twitter discourse last week about okay. whether... Alien was a horror film or not because it's set in space and horror films can be set in space. They, yeah. Just saying that here and now. Yeah, they can be set. Any <laughs> they can be set anywhere. You can have horror films on uh, in the sky on planes, snakes on a plane, the best yeah. sky-based horror <laughs> film possibly. Surely sci-fi is like a not a subgenre, but it's something that can be. It's a in anything kind of. Yeah, isn't it? it can be a yeah. setting. I mean, sci-fi is science fiction, mm -hmm. so. You know, he uses science to create something horrific. Yeah, I think... And it's a horror film with sci-fi elements. Yeah, you can absolutely mix-match genres together. Like, last week we talked about Hereditary. That's, like, drama horror. You can get Shaun of the Dead horror comedy. You can have, like, a horror action with aliens, which I think that's horror action and alien is horror, but horror sci-fi. Yeah. Yeah, it's malleable. And I think this is sci-fi... Horror, it's even though the term horror was not coined as a genre for several years after Frankenstein came out. So this technically, when it came out, wasn't a horror film. Um, yeah, it's it's sci-fi fantasy, more or less. Like Anyway, I just had to get that in. No, because, well, it's interesting. Um, yeah. Because tw Twitter was wrong about because, something again. Because, well, that person was proved wrong. It was only one per. It was a person that said it. And, um, yes... The horror community is up in arms about it. Rightly so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so speaking of uh, being up in arms and debauchery and controversy and stuff. So Henry Frankenstein is, uh, he's attending a funeral. Well, he's hiding in the shadows with Fritz watching this funeral take place. And then once the procession's gone, once the ceremony's over, him and Fritz dig up the body. And he and on the way back to their uh, laboratory, which is this massive like castle with a huge staircase, where on their way to the castle, they see a hanging corpse. Someone's hung themselves or has been strung, strung up there. They chop it down and take it. I think it was somebody that was sentenced to hang rather than somebody that hung themselves. Yeah, yeah. Hanging because corpse. don't forget, it was still legal back then. I mean, it still is some places. Well, and, yeah, well, yeah. I, I think the, the time period for the film is a bit vague. Like, it could be in the 1930s or it could be in the 1830s, anywhere during that time. Just resting, waiting for a new life to come. So Frankenstein's plan is to assemble all of these body parts from these corpses, uh, mishmash them together. Well, no, he found the perfect body, didn't he? And then he needed to find the brain. I think yeah. that's how it becomes a mixture of different body parts. Mm. Well, you see, um, you, before you see the actual animated creature, you see the hand on the side of the um of the the table that he's on and it's like different hands uh, attached to the arms he's, he's stitched body parts together more or less but he does need the brain so he sends fritz to this uh, his old university where dr waldman is giving uh, a lecture to his class uh, this is actually a bit of the film i didn't really like that much it, there's he's got these two brains he says this one is a normal brain this one's an abnormal brain because it came from a criminal someone who was violent yeah in life. but but the point is that that's setting the scene for us mm. that obviously something is going to go wrong because 
there is an abnormal brain mm -hmm. and this is a murderous brain. Yeah. But, uh, but because I think when the I mean, creature I comes think... to life and he's meant to be a sympathetic figure, I think he could have just had a normal... Like, you didn't need that detail, in my opinion. Well, it's probably the extra horror. It was the 30s. It was, yeah, like, it was. You know... Uh, I mean, it's, t it's technically not wrong, is it? I mean, murderers and, and that... There is supposedly, like, a certain gene that they're more predisposed to and... Um, Sometimes they have like psychopathic and sociopathic personalities, mm -hmm. and um, there's something like a special gene or like the McDonald triad and all sorts, mm. like head trauma and yeah. all sorts. So it, it kind of makes loosely, it, it loosely <laughs> a little bit, yeah. So Fritz goes in, he sneaks in under the cover of darkness to steal this uh, this normal brain. He gets scared by a noise and drops the he drops the glass container. So he picks up the abnormal one and flees away. But I think it's important for the for the time back then to explain why this person why this creation is so horrifying and and stuff like that. And it doesn't function as a normal brain mm. because it's lacking certain things yeah it obviously it's told in a 30s way and not told in a yeah 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 very good like way for now yeah yeah like but it, it, it's like i think it's important to it because it's like well this is gonna lead however like you say the the monster is empathetic we do empathize i certainly empathize with it mm. and in some ways the the monster is the victim mm, yeah and it all um and Really, he just doesn't know. Like, could you imagine just being like, you've not learned anything. You just wake up one day and you're just like this human body yeah. with this brain. You don't know anything. You've not been taught anything. Your parents haven't raised you. You've just been made. Yeah, and he's he's uh, once he's revived, he's kept in darkness for a few days. Yeah, and then tortured by bloody Fritz. Yeah, yeah. We'll get to that later. But I've yeah, I've, I've got a few issues with with like Fritz later on. But it, but we get to um. Uh, we meet Henry, uh, Henry's fiance Elizabeth, and the friend Victor, played by uh, May Clark and John Bowles, respectively. And basically, they're worried about Frankenstein's behaviour. And Henry and Elizabeth are due to get married soon, but he's been so obsessed with his, his experiments, and he's writing cryptic letters saying, "My work must come first. And they decide, you know what? We're going to go and visit. And we're going to bring Dr. Waldman along and find out because what the hell he's doing with these experiments. And they arrive on the night of this big thunderstorm and they they, bar they barge in and Fritz and Frankenstein say, you know what, we're going to let you watch this because they, you think we're insane. We need the sane witnesses to show us, bring life into the world. So you get this iconic, incredible scene. This, this great massive set as well with the laboratory, the electrodes everywhere, crashing lightning. This is the first film to have a thunderclap sound effect as well. It's like, great though, isn't it? it? It's, yeah, it, it really sets the scene. Yeah, it's uh, even the camera work as well when you see the... Uh, the body, the, uh, the the assembled corpse essentially get winched up out uh, of the ceiling up into the sky to be animated. It's incredible stuff. And the production design as well. Like, it's the best scene of the film, in my opinion. It's so atmospheric. The escalating soundscapes as well. It's brilliant. And then the body, as you should like you probably have seen just the scene even if you've not seen the film gets lowered down and the hand starts slowly rising and twitching and frankenstein is so elated at this that he needs to be restrained <laughs> and he's like it's alive it's alive, it's alive. <laughs> And he says, now I, now I must know what it feels like to be God. And that was a line that had to be censored because it was considered blasphemous at the time. And when it was released 
uh, oh. it's uh, uh, human humans good god complex is coming back around yeah. <laughs> always yeah uh, but when it was um when it was censored they just put way more thunder sound effects on top of the line so it was actually a pretty seamless uh, edit a pretty seamless sensor but yeah the so this film was censored to hell and back during its original release like so many scenes and so many moments and shots like the censors wanted to basically trim half of the film's runtime just through the concept and the and the ideas that it was presenting about you know god complex modern prometheus reviving the dead grave robbing etc and acts of violence making you think are oh, the mob the real villains of this story. <laughs> because this poor monster, it's not his fault he's alive. Mm. He doesn't know what he's doing. He thinks it's playing. Yes. Why are we, vi why are we like, ch you know, chasing him? Mm. Oh, he must no, what about we lock up crazy Henry Frankenstein, who created the thing in the first place. Yeah, Don't go after the monster. It's not the monster's fault. Yeah, and but a lot of the reason that I think the audience does empathise with the monster so much is that after that scene, when the corpse is revived, there's actually like another five or ten minutes before the big reveal. And I actually think this is kind of my problem with 1931's Frankenstein, in that... Half of it is perfect, incredible, iconic, wonderful, and there's a there's a good reason that people don't bring up the other half of the film, where it is just people talking about how worried they are about Frankenstein. And while the book and subsequent adaptations have made efforts to talk about the morality of bringing life into the world, and the book did this as well, uh, it seems the most that this film has on its mind in regards to Frankenstein's behaviour is mate i think you need to work on your on your work love relationship balance i think because you're neglecting your fiance the other half of the film with boris karloff with the revival scene and everything is incredible and brilliant and that stands the test of time but once frankenstein's monster his creature has been brought to life there is just like 10 minutes of well just talk for a little bit before boris karloff moonwalks into the room <laughs> that's my controversial take but like it's still an incredible film one that i think is essential viewing but i think only half of it does stand up but that half is so brilliant that it's worth seeing just to play devil's advocate mm -hmm. in the 30s marriage and the whole having an heir and stuff like that mm. was a huge thing back then. Yeah. Now it doesn't matter so much. So looking at it with modern eyes, but back then everything you did was you work for your family. Yeah. You have a family, you get married. Sorry, you get married, you have a family. Otherwise there'll be some gossip going around about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and you prolong your family line mm. and that's just what you did. That was your aspiration in life. Mm -hmm. There was... Little to no other options. Yeah. That was what you did. And it was during the Great Depression where you couldn't even drink alcohol in America, could you, at mm -hmm. this time? I yeah. mean, what was there to live for other than to get married and have children at that time? Mm. Um, it sounds dreadful, mm. but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's why there's a big emphasis on it in the film. Maybe if it was to be remade nowadays, there wouldn't be so much of a big emphasis on that and more mm. on the emphasis of the God complex and, like, is it right or wrong to do these kind of experiments? Is science going too far? Yeah. That's kind of the modern-day equivalent. Yeah. Whereas it is, it is portraying that back then mm. as well. Is science going too far? Is, is you know, but... I think for an audience of that time, this wouldn't feel out of place. Yeah, I I, I do agree with it, but I, I am viewing it through a modern lens and having watched numerous other adaptations and read the book and stuff like that. So that does colour my perception of the film. But like I said, I think half of this film does stand the test of but time. But I also think you're supposed to uh, feel sorry for his wife to be and everybody around him yeah because of what happens later on in the film mm. um where 
the monster does attack his bride-to-be and that's sort of what shakes Victor into realising... Sorry, um... Henry. Henry into... <laughs> it's it's weird, that name change is weird. <laughs> Henry into realising, you know, oh my god, what have I done, what have I created? And he becomes part of the mob looking for the monster and chasing it down, even mm-hmm. though he's the one that should be chased down and yeah. locked up for this. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, but, one, but once you get those dialogue scenes after the initial iconic lightning sequence then we do get to meet frankenstein's creature frankenstein's monster whatever you want to call him boris karloff would call him the creature uh, or if you watch the opening credits of the film it's uh, the monster with question mark at the beginning of the film audiences wouldn't he he's not credited as an actor in the beginning credits of the film which is a lovely nice little touch but he uh, you hear his footsteps and he walks backwards into a room opening the door kind of like imagine if you're holding a tray and you have to open the door with your bum things like <laughs> things like that but he walks backwards into the room slowly turns around and you get these two like crash zooms into his face and you see the makeup and you see the like the the iconic bone structure and the silhouette <sighs> and the half closed eyes of Frankenstein's monster. Oh, can I just say, as a huge makeup enthusiast, this is just one of the best makeups ever. It's incredible. Ever made. Like, anyone that is a makeup enthusiast, if they... You'd be hard to find somebody that didn't love this makeup. Mm. Let's be honest. Like, it is one of the most iconic makeups. Um, It's just incredible. Yeah. With the materials that Jack Pierce had at the time, it is just incredible. Yeah, like they use things like cotton and stuff. And to... rigid collodion, um, which is like a solvency plastic. Hmm. And when it can still be used nowadays, um, but it is very strong. And nowadays, if you use it, it's more to kind of create a scar effect um, rather than to build a prosthetic with. So obviously now we have silicones and foam latex to make things better mm. with, um, and more flexible, whereas rigid collodion, as is in its name, it's really rigid. Um, so it'd be like a plastic, a hard thing, a plastic thing that's on his head. Mm. So it'd be really hard um, for him to emote properly. However, he does an amazing job. Yeah, and it, it's, <laughs> it's because I think this is a example of performer and makeup like colliding (laughs) yes perfectly working in tandem with each other and that sounds like an odd thing to say but like you've got one reason boris karloff was chosen for this because he was kind of well established in the industry working in silent films and talkies and stuff like this was his 80th film in the industry (laughs) guy was a busy man but he was spotted by the director on like the other side of a restaurant and he's got this unique like he's got this pronounced brow hasn't he he's got a Mm. unique facial structure pronounced brow yeah and like the his cheekbones and things like that which he was able to further accentuate for the makeup by taking out some of his dental work as well yes uh which is which is really interesting Um, and then jack pierce would basically go in and um contour the hole in his mouth to make it more pronounced. Mm. Simple, but amazing. How long does would a makeup job like that take in the 30s? How, how well, is... they, say, they said it was like three hours that it would take to... Now, by modern day standards, when they said three hours, it's like, yeah, that's not that bad. Most mm. applications take roughly three hours, mm. uh, especially when you think to something like American Werewolf in London, which took like 10 hours to prepare... Mm. on set and then you'd film and then you have to take it off (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah but i suppose with the materials that they were using back in the day like whereas now you'd use one piece this was building the makeup up Mm. every time yeah so i'm assuming it couldn't have been reused you'd have to do it the whole time so you'd be sat in the chair every day for three hours just having the same thing built over and again and all these solvents don't forget it'd be pretty sore it'd be smelly um, I mean, they use spirit gum, which, as we all know, is not used very often nowadays because it stinks and it's not very nice. Yeah. It's a very hard-wearing glue. Um, there are much better alternatives now. Um, mm. So they would have spent a lot of time together. Yeah. 
And he's got these, like, long, these, like, really big, heavy boots as well. Like, they weighed 13 pounds each. And it's a physically demanding role as well. And there's a great documentary on the our Blu-ray collection. Because there was something about the face that I couldn't quite put my finger on about one reason why it works so well. But it turns out it's because they've added, like artificial eyelids yes so they used um so you can still get it today mortician's wax so uh karloff he believed he looked too alive mm. um and so he and jack pierce the makeup artist the head of the makeup department um decided to put mortician's wax on his eyelids so that because it's so heavy, he wouldn't be able to lift his eyes open so much. So that's why they're permanently half closed. Yeah. And that gives the monster the effect that it does. I think if you'd have removed that part, it wouldn't have been nearly as effective as mm. those big eyelids that yeah. are just half open. Because it makes it look like it is an animated corpse in, in the face. Because it isn't... Like, Kind of like when you're in a daze, maybe when you're half awake and you're walking around. It's sort of like this weird mix of like sleeping and being awake in the look in his eyes. It's a really simple thing, but I think that is the finishing touch more or less. And you've got the uh, the electrodes in its neck as well. The flat, uh, the flat head, which kind of gives the impression that you can kind of take the head off and like the top of the head off and put the brain in and reconstruct the head around it. It's, it's really, it's an iconic design for a reason and it has stood the test of time. And with the colours, I imagine like a greyish greeny on set, but it looks perfect in black and white. You used certain colours back then to get the design effect on the black and white screen, didn't you? Mm. But I'm not too sure of the actual colour of the makeup. I know for the posters it was turned green. Mm. Like Frankenstein and Monster's look was turned green and that's why we all think he's green. But I'm not actually sure if he was green or not. Mm. Um, I need to do a little bit more research into that. There are colour photos of the set of The Bride of Frankenstein and it is like a, a grey pinky look. Like, yeah put, that, that's that's from that film but i'm not sure about this i one. assume it's the same thing mm. i assume they went for more of a dead flesh color and then the graphics for the posters he was turned green and that's why people think his makeup was green um but i'm pretty sure it wasn't actually green no. in in the film because if it was it would turn up like a dark color like sometimes when they wanted like red lipstick they would use a green color yeah to because it uh, in black and white film, it looks um, like a red lipstick, mm. even though you are looking at a black and white yeah, thing, yeah. you know, because of the shades and the tones. Yeah. Um, uh, sorry, because of the shades, mm. there's no tone in it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like with um, The Bride of Frankenstein, not many people know that her wig is actually red. It's it's red and blo with blonde streaks in. Okay. But because it was shown in black and white, everybody just assumed it was black mm. with, uh, you know, like in Rocky Horror. Yeah. Um, that's obviously, a, you know, it looks like it was in Rocky Horror where it's like a with magenta. She has the red hair and, and the streaks. That's what the wig looks like on Elsa Lanchester, mm. Lancaster, Lancaster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but and I noticed recently it did a... Um, I already knew all this because one, I'm a massive monster nerd. <laughs> Two, I'm a massive makeup nerd. Yeah. So I knew all this stuff anyway, but it surprised me to see just how many people didn't know that the wig was actually red mm. and not black. Yeah. Um, but because we're so used to seeing it in black and white, you just assume that. But no, they have to use color, different colors mm. for it to show up differently in black and white. Like, um, the reason that blusher is still, like, blusher was used a lot and they had heavy makeup back then is because if you didn't wear blusher, um, you look flat. Mm. It's the same as now. You need blusher to, like, give a bit of colour and height in the cheeks. But, um, yeah, especially back then on black and white film, if you didn't wear it, um... You, your skin didn't look right mm. um, and you'd look kind of dead. Yeah. So there's loads of... Yeah, so they didn't necessarily use red lipstick back then. Sometimes it'd be a green colour in order to look 
read mm. on the screen, if that makes sense. Yeah, it was like the the most recent example of of this that kind of blew up the internet when they realised it was in WandaVision, uh, the Marvel series where Vision, played by Paul Bettany, in colour, he's like a pinky purpley colour. But in those episodes where it's set in black and white sepia tone 1950s sitcom, behind the scenes he's coloured purple. Uh, he's like, like a purpley blue colour because it just looks more authentic to his colour version when it's in black and white. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So there we go. That's like um, a repeat of... That's using an old technique from back in the day, yeah. which is really super cool that they managed to do that. And also don't forget um, if there's any sort of green screen or blue screen stuff going on. Um, quite often characters now will have a green jaw... But then mm. it'll be CGI'd. Yeah. So we have, we do still kind of use the same sort of techniques. It's just it's moved onto a different field. Mm. It understands this time. It's wonderful. Frankenstein, Frankenstein, where is it? Where is it? Ah! Quiet, you fool! Get away with that torch. For the actual look of the the creature itself, the first like screen tests were done with Bella Lugosi, where on the set of Dracula, they when Bella Lugosi was still uh, pondering whether or not he wanted to be involved in this film, they did a makeup screen test where he looked more like uh, Paul Wegner's Golem, like the nineteen fifteen silent uh, German expressionist horror film, where it was a much bigger creature, like a like a, a big headpiece. For my um, frame of reference comparison is Wendelin from Wallace and Gromit's A Close Shave, like a weird headpiece, basically. That was kind of like the the look of the golem. Um, but that's considered now to be one of uh, the biggest like lost pieces of film from the era as well. I was going to say, yeah, nobody's sort of seen that. Yeah. Because um, yeah. It, yeah, it was lost. You only have like witnesses at the time who describe this version. There's, there's also the um, a poster from 1931 where Bela Lugosi was still credited as he's going to be starring in Frankenstein before he dropped out or before the casting changed and it's a very different like the actual costume the look of him wearing all black with black hair is kind of the same but the actual face and the expression and everything is very different he looks like the Hulk he does a bit yeah he looks he like, looks more like the Hulk he, he, yeah he looks like the Hulk in a suit doesn't he yeah, yeah. it's an interesting look but just seeing how the look changed throughout pre-production and obviously through the casting as well. Like, Bela Lugosi has a very different face to Boris Karloff. Striking features, but in a very different way. Absolutely, yeah. And I think Boris Karloff... I think, I think it wouldn't work as well. I'm going to be controversial. It wouldn't work as well with Bela Lugosi. His eyes are too... Um, Fierce. Just, yeah, like, his. Do you know what I mean? When you look at him, his eyes are too... Because he has, because Frank, because Bela Lugosi has played Frankenstein before, uh, in I think it was like Frankenstein versus the Wolfman. Yeah. And he doesn't. He, it doesn't have the same effect. Yeah. Like he doesn't have the prominent brow the same, and the eyes. Like when you look at Bela Lugosi, just as Bela Lugosi, he's got these beautiful piercing eyes, mm. um, and like his facial features, like he's not. He doesn't have the cheekbones that Karloff has either. Yeah. So you're losing a little bit of the gauntness yeah. of what makes Frankenstein Frankenstein. Yeah, his face looks fuller as well. Um, like, that's not exactly a criticism, but I think when no, you compare them side by side... When you don't have the gauntness of... Um, it looks a lot more skeletal in Karloff's version, which I think plays better it's a it's a better looking frankenstein yeah i think I sorry think so. monster it's a better looking <laughs> monster yeah but yeah it, and just the introductory scenes as well where he he doesn't as far as i can remember he doesn't actually have any dialogue he just he has these grunts and growls and uh, shrieks and things like that but like when we first meet him he, as he like walks into the room uh, Frankenstein, his creator, tells him to stand and uh, stand and sit on this chair, and he opens up this rafter in the ceiling, and he reaches his hands up to like almost like try and reach the sunlight for the first time because he's been kept in a dark room for the first days of his life, which must be pretty depressing. 
uh, yeah, and it's a really sympathetic performance. And the reason he kind of turns is because Fritz decides to be a bit of a dickhead and, uh, and him. yeah, and, and tries to get uh, like a torch on the end of a stick, fire on the end of a stick, and kind of harass him. And th- this is a narrative issue I've got with the film. Like, why does Fritz have such an issue with this creature? Because he seemed to have no problem working for. Um, Henry Frankenstein before he before the creature was created. It's probably it's bit... because it's different. Maybe. But... And and now there's something else there, and he can't. You know, he's taken the place of him. Yeah. Uh, you know, Frankenstein is putting all his efforts into the monster, the creature. Now. I think it makes sense if you are able to editorialize and and think of a motivation like retrospectively but in the film itself it's like fritz just decides to be a bit of a dickhead to the creature because the creature needs to have some reason for lashing out the way it does he ends up killing fritz in a scene that was originally censored and so basically fritz in the censored version of the film just disappears from (laughs) this disappears from the movie there's even a scene where they have to tranquilize the creature to knock him out and they couldn't show footage of a needle going into someone's back, which is how they overpower him. So during this struggle outside of his prison cell, in the censored version, Frankenstein's creature just drops to the floor halfway through this fight. And that's... Yeah, the censors were brutal. They were like, we don't care if this makes sense. We're slicing this film as much as we can. But it also brings us to one of the most... uh, One of the best scenes of the film, One of although it was depressingly censored as well when uh frankenstein has decided you know the creature's gonna be killed my mentor is gonna do it for me so i can go home and get married to my fiance it's gonna be great but the creature ends up overpowering the mentor killing him and go just goes out into the world on his own and meets this young girl by this lake this uh, the dad is left to do some errands on this farm so you've got this young girl called maria played by marilyn harris and there's some wonderful stories behind the scenes of um, Marilyn interacting with Boris Karloff, where you've got this young girl, it's her like second film. She was raised in foster care and adopted by this woman who kind of forced her to have a career in, in screen because she wanted to act in her film. She wasn't able to, so she tried to impose that on the daughter. It was apparently quite abusive as well, the mother. Mm. So, But when she was on set, she took a real shine to Boris Karloff. Even in his makeup, Even yeah. In, yeah, because they were wondering, like, how do we protect the this young girl, this seven-year-old, from this creature? That, would it scare her too much? But when they arrived on set, she approaches Karloff in full makeup and says, you know, can I ride in the car with you? And she's like, yeah, of course. Yeah, she takes a hold of his hand and says, can, can I ride with you? And he says, what is it? He says, it's really lovely. Would you, darling? Oh. Yeah, and then they get in the same car and head to the location. Yeah, and she's you so- can tell in the performance though that there's a a real nice relationship between them. Yeah, a softness. Like even in the film, the monster, he treats the little girl with a softness, a kindness, mm. um, and he's he's learning from her, and she isn't letting anything prejudice her. She just sees him as somebody to play with. Yeah. Um. Somebody to keep her company and have fun with, and she, somebody to show a new game to. They're playing a game where she passes him some daisy heads or flower heads, and she goes look, and she throws them into the water, and they float, and he has a go, and he he enjoys it. You know, somebody's taking the time to be with him and showing him something new, and then um probably the most famous scene of the film. <laughs> He picks the young girl up thinking she's going to float too, chucks her in the water, but she can't swim yeah. and she drowns. She, she... But if you notice, he does lean out to try and get her. Yeah, because she hits the water and then fl- and she sinks quite quickly. It's like once she's out of sight, like he can't do anything to help. So he's scared. He looks around. There's no one else. So he... He bolts, he runs off. Yeah. And it's and Boris Karloff's performance in this scene, like, it's genuine horror. It's like I didn't mean for that to happen. Yeah, he thought yeah, he thought she would float too. Mm, so... He thought he was playing. No, you're hurting me! No! <laughs> 
So the, the censored version, because uh, there's a, a shot where he picks up the girl, throws her into the water. The uh, the censored version ends as, as he leans in to pick her up, and then that's the end of the scene. And then we later see the dad carrying the wet body oh, through so the Oh, so they town. can show the dead body of a girl, but they can't show him throwing her into the water. A- apparently not. How it, so the scene was lost. It was cut for several decades until it was found in... Uh, in a film canister, an archived one in England in the 1980s, which is why when you watch uh, the modern version of it restored on Blu-ray and DVD and everything, the quality between, the quality change between the two shots is notably different because the film had slightly deteriorated in storage. But yeah, so that was another censored film moment. Uh, But it's one of the best scenes in the film. And they... One of the most iconic scenes of any film i think yeah and definitely in horror and especially from this era but because the young actress had like so many layers of clothes on like a petticoat and a dress and everything she wouldn't sink um and (laughs) so the director said like if if we do this take again and you know we change your clothing a bit so that you're able to sink you can have anything you want you can have whatever you want and the young girl says you know well my mom's got me on a diet so there's one thing I really want, and it's a dozen hard-boiled eggs as a snack, because that's her favourite food, apparently. So they do the take, they get it, it's all great, and then a few days later, she receives a gift from the director, and it's two dozen hard-boiled eggs, <laughs> which is a lovely, a lovely story. Um, and she, uh, she uh, had a career for several years, uh, passed away in the 90s, became the uh, last living member of the cast of Frankenstein. Uh, but it's she's yeah she it's a very small role it's one scene but it's yeah but it's I lovely. think it makes the biggest impact yeah that is the one scene I remember from it aside from it's alive yeah yeah <laughs> it's not in the book either this is an an entirely original creation I don't know if it was in the play but it's something that has happened in the adaptation and I think it's really it's a it's all the better for it. It's it's a really great scene. They both play it so well. And even though it's not explained, like, there's no dialogue, of course, from the creature. But you can read the thought process. It's like, oh, the flowers, they're floating, they're pretty, it's great. Oh, my hands are empty, I don't... Yeah, oh, I want to carry on playing. Yeah, I'll pick you up and throw you in. As a game, And yeah, she, yeah. she thuds into the water and just immediately sinks. And it's like, the mood from the scene just snaps away it's brilliant it's really great so as frankenstein is getting ready for the wedding and everyone's drinking and having a great time let's just give a quick shout out though to a uh, baron frankenstein played by frederick kerr um <laughs> who's who's it's a really uh fun st- offbeat performance especially when he turns up to the castle and he's like oh there's so many stairs there's so many stairs and i massively related to that I would advise you to take Henry away from here at once. Well, what do you suppose I'm here for? Pleasure? What? Nah. Here, where, where are you, my dear? Oh, there you are. Let's go and see what's up to awful stairs. I don't know how the deuce I'm going to get out of them, but it's... Ah, okay. Ah, you want to be good. Leave them alone. Yes, like this, like no banisters or anything else. Ah, so how much further? So we're there at the wedding, however... They, this is another bit of a contrivance, they find someone, I don't know who, I don't know when, but Dr. Waldman's body is discovered, so they think, oh, the, the creature's out there somewhere, uh, so let's let's lock the fiancé into the bedroom. Somehow the creature knows which house to go to, makes it there <laughs> undetected, opens the window, gets inside, scares the fiancé. In the book, um, out of, like, spite and vengeance, because... Um, Frankenstein offers to make the creature a mate, someone to love and to be with because he's created alone in this world. The creature speaks in the book and is quite eloquently spoken. And also, with the exception, obviously he's deformed and stitched up from body parts, but he does he he doesn't have a monstrous appearance outside of the stitching apart aspect. So it's once again liberties and adaptation. But because he refuses in the end to make this creature this bride for him he takes revenge and says, I'm going to take away the thing that you love most and kills the wife. So that, but in this one, he just scares her a bit and she's like draped on the bed uh, and says, oh, it, it was Henry, it was the creature, it was, she went that way. And then they 
for mobs to try and get him once the dad of the young girl arrives in town with the daughter's body and says she was murdered, even though I don't think there's any forensics at the scene. I know, that was the one thing that I was like, hmm, how do you know she was murdered? Yeah, and, and everyone's like, okay, well, we're going to find the creature. Unless the body floated to the top. Maybe it floated back up. But either way, he, he, he'll go to the lake and just see the drowned girl, which obviously would be distressing, but would your mind immediately go to murder? I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe he saw the creature drop her in, but then why wouldn't he stop? To... I don't know. E- either, anyway, yeah, let's e- try and get over that hiccup. Either way, <laughs> there's there's a quite a few leaps. So they go. Uh, they this is the iconic. You know, take your pitchforks and torches and let's go. We'll form search parties and like because this is obviously in the 30s and they want the money to be on screen. Like a hundred extras just storm <laughs> down this street. Like it's kind of insane. Like you you, you don't see that that often even in like some modern films where you just have hundreds of extras with torches and pitchforks in costume and stuff heading down this massive set. They form search parties. Search every ravine, every crevice, but the fiend must be found. Yeah! I'm ready. Yeah! Yeah! Take your torches and go. And, of course, who finds Frankenstein's creature? It's Frankenstein's party. Um, And they get into a a scuffle. They punch for a bit. Frankenstein gets knocked out and the creature carries him up this mountain. And there's some contention about the way that this scene was filmed because um, apparently, according to people who worked on the film, um, it's not corroborated too much, but apparently director James Whale was getting quite jealous of the positive attention that Boris Karloff was getting and was like, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's kind of upstaging me on the set of my own film. So out of spite, apparently, he asked Boris Karloff to pick up uh, Colin Clive's body and take him up and down the hill dozens and dozens of times while he's in this, you know, big costume, these heavy boots, and they, he refused to let him carry a dummy saying it didn't look realistic enough, so he's carrying this guy up and down this hill to the extent that um, it actually threw his back out. He broke his back during this film, which is why he couldn't go to the premiere, because his back was broken. He had multiple surgeries after this film as well, and his back issues would... Yeah, it left him um, with issues for the rest of his life. Yeah, uh, so it was a bit of a a dick move on the director's part. Um, But yeah, so he carries him up this mountain. They go to a, a big wooden windmill... And they have another bit of a fight on the inside. And there's this great scene where they're inside a windmill and the wooden mechanisms are turning. And Creature and Creator look at each other through the spinning wooden turntable, like a zoetrope, basically, catching glimpses of each other from the other side. Brilliant shots, really visually striking. Uh, The mob, they burn the windmill. They start torching it up. Frankenstein's creation throws him off the balcony. He hits this windmill, what do you call it? Um, the fan. He hits one of the propellers on the way down, which probably should have killed him, but apparently it just breaks his fall. Um, really nasty injury. And the creature apparently dies in the inferno. Also, we think. Also, we think, because there's multiple sequels. But the ending of the film was uh, changed to allow Henry Frankenstein to live. He was he was meant to die, but the producers thought, no, we kind of need a happy ending for this. But Colin Clive, he wasn't available to shoot the ending, so it it's shot with him, his body double at a distance in a room as the the dad is like, well, I hope he has grandkids, and then that's that's the film. As I said before, I say again, here's. Here's to a son, to the house of Frankenstein. It's a bit of a tacked on ending, and I think it kind of takes the wind out of the ending sails. But, you know, the iconic torches and pitchforks, burning ending, it's iconic and it's it's really, it's really impressive uh, production-wise. 
I also think, as much as we talk about how great Boris Karloff is, we need to talk about Colin Clive, who's... Oh, yeah, he's great. Yeah, he's got the incredible manic energy, and when his, like, fringe is down and everything, like, he looks unhinged, but he makes it seem like he truly believes in himself. He adds legitimacy to the part. Yeah, there's, like, an authenticity. Like, he believes, like, he is right, he is God, he has created this thing. Mm. And, um slowly finds out maybe you shouldn't be creating humans <laughs> yeah. in that way. <laughs> yeah. and, and these actions like have consequences and it's not for him to do. Well, it's it's something that apparently was... Uh, the performance was given added legitimacy due to what happened in his life. He was um, he was an alcoholic to the extent where sometimes in, in some other films he would like fall asleep during filming. During over-the-shoulder shots, some people would have to prop up um, his... like unconscious body because he just he was passed out from drinking and only a couple of years after he filmed bride of frankenstein a few years later he, he passed away he died at the age of 37 um oh, so it no was age. yeah it, it was something that kind of he dealt with throughout his life i think he was like sober during filming for this but it was something yeah he... in the documentary it said he he was sober but they were worried that he would turn into dr jekyll and yeah, mr hyde and he'd relapse and, um, and something but his co-stars all said great things about him yeah um and and um may clark said he was lovely to work with uh, but she could see there was a sadness within him yeah and and obviously life trumps the the art that's being made obviously but i think it he's 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 iconic in this film and he brings that to the to the screen i think he's it's a really powerful performance and he is of course the when he's the voice when you say it's alive it's alive that's it's that performance that everyone's emulating yeah have you never wanted to do anything that was dangerous where should we be if nobody tried to find out what lies beyond you never wanted to look beyond the clouds and the stars or to know what causes the trees to bud and what changes a darkness into light if you talk like that, people call you crazy. Well, if I could discover just one of these things, what eternity is, for example, I wouldn't care if they did think I was crazy. And Dwight Fry is a lot of fun as well as Fritz. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, I think it's a bit of a, it's a very random role. I, it's something that I don't think needs to be there. Like, However, he impressed James Wales so much that he appeared in, was it five other of James Wales' films? Yes, because he's, uh, like, he was obviously in Dracula as well. He would, he would work, uh, he'd become a bit typecast as the, as the mad, crazy, uh, person, but he would, he would be in multiple, like, horror films over, like, the next decade, uh, including more Frankenstein films as well. character so much i have him tattooed on my arm <laughs> mm. yes you do yes frankenstein frankenstein's monster with the bride as well with the bride yes. yeah yeah i know that bride of frankenstein is not a love story however <laughs> i've chosen to make it a love story on my arm <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly yeah um and also because um universal while you know frankenstein is a book that has been like adapted and has been done by numerous different studios and things like that the actual look of the creature has been copyrighted by universal i'm not surprised <laughs> yeah um and the po i don't know specifically which one but i do think it's like i think we've even got a, a, the printout of the poster like an a5 one of um boris karloff like looming over may clark that poster the original print of that from the 30s is the most expensive movie poster memorabilia in film history it's, it's estimated to be valued about sixty thousand dollars and the only known copy of it is in a private collection Ooh. so if anyone wants uh a very expensive movie poster, then you go for that Frankenstein one. I mean, if I ever became a millionaire or a billionaire, yeah, I'd hunt it down. <laughs> oh, speaking of um, uh, being like a massive enthusiast, and um, this is Guillermo del Toro's uh, one of his favorite films as well. Of course, it is. It is, 
And he was also, for years, like, trying to get a remake of it done. Uh, he was wanting to direct it for Universal. Oh. And it, unfortunately, never happened. Uh, so he made his own version of Creature from the Black Lagoon instead. <laughs> he did, yeah. <laughs> when, when, and Doug Jones was uh, going to be the monster, was going to oh, be the creature. that's quite a good pick, you know. He's got quite a prominent facial features too yeah and with like modern makeup effects and stuff as well i think it would have looked incredible and it would have been yeah like and there's there was a film a few years ago victor frankenstein with james mcavoy and daniel radcliffe not a good film but the creature makeup at the end is basically this but turned up to 11 and it's i don't recommend it but it is a it's basically remember like guy ritchie's sherlock holmes where they tried to make him a bit of an act they made it an action film but trying to uh, make it period appropriate for the setting uh they tried to do the same thing here and it didn't quite work um i think mcavoy was great as uh, as frankenstein though and daniel radcliffe was an interesting igor but it's um the the i think the production of it because it was directed by paul mcguigan who did a lot of like sherlock episodes he's done uh, some great british tv it was um a film that looked great but creatively didn't really hold together as for the future of uh, Frankenstein, so obviously there was, this is the first horror film franchise as well. They had several sequels, several team-ups with other Universal monsters. There was the, the remake that we talked about that was uh, from... The uh, Robert De Niro. Yes, uh, Kenneth Branagh uh, directing Frankenstein as well for in the 90s. There was also talk of trying to create it for the, recreate it for the, the dark universe with the mummy and things like oh, that. I so wish that would have... Do you know what? I didn't actually hate the mummy remake. I, w- I prefer the Brendan Fraser mummy. That seems more accurate to the original mummy yeah. than the one that we got. Yeah. But I didn't... I didn't... Controversial opinion. I didn't hate it. But also, do you want to know who they were going to get to play uh, the creature? Javier Bardem. Oh, that's a good pick. I know, and I hope that with the Invisible Man, they'll be like, you know, there's actually a market for this if we budget it appropriately. Uh, they don't all need to connect. Let's try it. I think there is a market for Although that. I am here for like another Monster Squad. That would be cool. Monster Squad. <laughs> yes, that's going on the list. So yeah, but for this one, there were sequels. Um, Bride of Frankenstein, Son of Frankenstein, Ghost of Frankenstein, Meets the Wolfman, House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, Abbott and Costello, Meet Frankenstein, etc. This is the first horror film franchise. And this started off it. It started off in... Incredible fashion. I can't imagine being in the 1930s and just watching all this stuff for the first time. And like, yeah. obviously, obviously, I'm approaching some of it from a modern perspective. I do think some You'd of shit your pants. I reckon. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm. I'd be like, I wish I took that guy's advice at the beginning of the film. But, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I, I'm approaching it from a modern sensibility. I think half of it doesn't quite work or hold up, but the other half is so iconic and would easily, it just easily makes up for some of the issues and. It, yeah, it's incredible. You know who was going to play Bride of Frankenstein, don't you? Angelina Jolie. Yeah, yes. Um, and so Javier Bardem and Angelina Jolie. That's a power couple if ever I saw one. Mm. I'd hope that they get something off the ground with that again, like more in the vein of Invisible Man. But Oh yeah, that was incredible. Yeah, and like James Wan would have been producing it and everything. So yeah, we'll see how the universe of, um, of the dark universe and the future of that if that gets uh, picked up again or if it recovers, we'll see how it goes. I was so excited for the Dark Universe. <laughs> I love me monster films. Yeah, I think it's been like nearly 100 years since these films came out. I think, I think, have, I think updating them would work. You'd have to get it right though, wouldn't you? I yeah. mean, I just didn't even... I think I was just so excited that there was a new set of monster movies coming out that i didn't mind the mummy so much yeah and i think um, it, i think i like the idea of like um a big team up but i think um I, I, if i had to pick between like more films in the vein of the mummy or the invisible man i'd pick the latter anyway. yeah but i think yeah. there's a market for it and i think done right and they had the a great creative team like bill condon was going to do bride of frankenstein and that he's like bill condon even directed like a film about james whale the director of this, played by Ian McKellen, called Gods and Monsters. It, it won Best Adapted Screenplay at the Oscars. And you know, the the team is there. I guess they need to be aimed in the right direction. I oh, think. let Guillermo do one. Come on. It's, I, I think let him do Creature from the Black Lagoon, seeing as though he did Shape of Water. Yeah, he should just like do whatever. He, he should do his own original versions of 
like universal monsters. Well, he, well, he's already done one. Yeah, so he needs to do the rest of them. He's, he's got Pinocchio coming out this year. Um, a stop motion musical fantasy. So I'm looking forward to that. No, I'm not. Oh, <laughs> you, you turned so quickly. I'll watch anything he does. Maybe not Pinocchio. Yeah. Anyway, that's Frankenstein. So in terms of what we're going to be talking about next, though, it's not Pinocchio, but we're going to spin the wheel and find out what we're talking about next Monday. So we're hopping from one franchise starter to another. Yeah, so what are we talking about next week? Nightmare on Elm Street. But the original. The original. The, original, <laughs> the, the, 19, the, the really good one. <laughs> you know, uh, played by Robert England, Wes Craven. Yeah. Yes. Love it. Really looking forward to that. I've not revisited it for a while. The the number three sticks out in my mind the most. That's Dream Warriors, I think. No? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. Okay, okay. Yeah. Nuns. That's terrifying. That's why I don't like nuns, you know, mm. that film. Just just that film? Yeah. Just that, okay. That film. <laughs> started it. So, uh, folks, if you have any thoughts about the Universal Monsters or Frankenstein, or if you prefer the book to the film or any of its sequels or remakes, please let us know on social media. Yaz, where can our listeners find us on social media? On Twitter at MonsterMonPod, Instagram at MonsterMondayPod, and Facebook is the same as Instagram. Folks, thank you so much for listening to the Monster Monday podcast. My name is Will. My name is Yaz. And we'll see you folks next week. Bye. Bye.